Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed, they say. We will speak with the subject matter experts about the intersection of finance, geopolitics, and history in order to connect the timeless with the immediate. Today's guest on the podcast is Mark Schneider. Mark has often been called a nuclear futurist and a leading proponent an expert in emerging generation for nuclear technology. He has a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering and has spent over two decades working with advanced small-scale nuclear reactors within the U.S. Naval Nuclear Power Program. Mark is the proud father of six children and devotes a lot of his time to educating the general public and policymakers about the implications of generation four nuclear technology through his own company. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Speak a little bit about your background and how did you come to become a champion for nuclear energy? I'll try and condense this because it's a long story about my life. Uh, Back in 1996, I was taking AP physics in high school and my uh, physics teacher showed, uh, we started talking about the chart of nucleides, which is like the periodic table for nuclear energy. It's way more complex, but I remember just watching it. It's like this giant roadmap. And I like to call it, it's the, uh, the decoder ring for, for the future or for the universe. Um, and so I saw this thing and became fascinated with it. And it was specifically, I think we were looking at, uh, at the basis of how fission works and, and all that. I was just super interested in that. And so I said, hey, I want to work in that. So it was like this weird, you know, you know happenstance. And um, I was looking at going to different universities and uh, one day the Navy recruiter called me out of the blue and he was like, hey, have you ever thought about joining the Navy? I had no idea the Navy had nuclear power at this point. And I sarcastically said, only if you have a nuclear power program, he goes, boy, do I have a deal for you. And then I ended up joining the Navy because they, to work in their, in, on nuclear reactors in the Navy. And uh, I did 20 years with that, uh, ended up meeting my wife in the shipyard on a submarine under construction nuclear powered submarine under construction. And you know, my wife is nuclear, I, my hobby's nuclear, and my work is nuclear. I have the nerdiest pillow talk of anyone. Got into the industry, you know, I've worked on submarines, aircraft carriers, and then when I retired from the, the Navy, I started working on large scale commercial reactors. And then part of that, because I've just been so interested in it, I've started, you know, diving deep into how these advanced reactors work. Um, you know, my personal physical experience with reactors has all been with these what are called light water reactors, specifically a pressurized water reactor, but just learning how the different other kinds of reactors work, whether it's a, a liquid metal, a molten salt, um, gas cooled, you know, just seeing how all that stuff works has just been really fascinating and it's just really cool and really neat. So that's kind of my quick background and hopefully a minute or less. Can you explain nuclear energy right from the extraction of the element all the way to the generation of power, like you would explain to your 10 year old? Yeah, so this is the uh, probably the, and you talk about explaining it to the 10-year-old because that's kind of what, you know, I see my role in all this is to be the translator. Um, and really what it is is that we mine uh, uranium out of the ground or thorium, right? So we mine a, a material out of the ground. Um, in the case of uranium, there's two types of uranium, one that is immediately able to be used in a reactor, and the other has to be transformed into plutonium. Um, and then the other, and then there's thorium, which we actually turn into plut- into uranium. This is why it gets really confusing because it's uranium, uranium, uranium. But basically we extract items and either we, we can use it in fission or we can um, turn it into something that can be used in fission. And fission is just the, a large element, 
a large atom that we split um, into uh, into two smaller elements. And what happens is a neutron, which is just a small particle of matter, will hit that nucleus and it causes it to become unstable and it splits into two. And I like using maybe chopping wood here, right? So that neutron is like the axe head and it strikes that 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 chunk of wood and a good portion of the time it's going to split that wood in two, typically uneven halves, but it's going to split that too. And in that process, you'll see all these bits of debris kind of fly out. Well, that happens as well. We call that, that that's in the form of heat and light and other neutrons. And then that heat is used to uh, heat up your coolant, whether it's gas or metal or uh, salt or water, and you use that to uh, boil boil water, and that water will then drive a turbine. Can you explain generation three and generation four reactors? What are the top five ways in which the next generation of reactors that you speak so prolifically about, how are they better? Why are they more efficient? And why are they more safe? So the, there's a specific definition uh, for a generation four reactor that came out of a conference in 2008. And it's really complex. And I've just boiled it down to the definition of a generation four reactor is it's designed to be safe from meltdown. Um, and the difference is, is that they've, they've changed the, they've used physical properties, uh, by coolant selection primarily. So right now, the majority of the reactors around the world are cooled by water. And, uh, and, you know, if you know about Fukushima, you know about Three Island, you know about Chernobyl. Um, those were all water cooled reactors. And there's a problem with water that causes a phase change. Uh, not to get too technical, but that cause, that's a major problem. And, and the reason why we had, um, the meltdowns. And by switching to something, say, a liquid metal, a gas, or a, um, you know, a molten salt, uh, the heat transfer properties of these generation four reactors allow it to basically, no matter through the entire temperature range you're going to operate, it's going to still be able to remove that heat at the same rate. Um, so you don't go for like with water, when it gets too hot, it becomes steam. Steam doesn't take away heat real well, but you know, you're talking a molten metal reactor or liquid metal reactor, that metal is going to remain as a liquid the entire time. So it's going to extract that heat. So that's the big difference between a generation three and a generation four reactor is the, the, the primary the change in cooling. Some of the other things with generation four that you can do that you can't do with a generation three is you can actually consume nuclear waste as your fuel. There's one large scale commercial generate commercial reactor that qualifies as a generation four reactor, and it's the BN 800 in Russia. Her initial fuel was actually nuclear weapons. Another great thing about generation four is I can consume nuclear weapons for my fuel, but she was initially loaded with nuclear weapons material. It's no longer able to be used as nuclear weapons. And coming, you know, this year went, uh, yeah, this year went through a ref it went through a, a refuel. Next year, go through refuel and by next year, um, all the fuel in the BN800 will be nuclear waste from those old light water reactors. So that's probably the, the, the three biggest things with generation uh, four that I would think are important is one, they're designed to be safe from meltdown. Uh, two, they can consume nuclear waste. And three, they can actually also consume uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and then I would say for four and five, four is you can use a blend of fuels. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about thorium. Um, I can take thorium and put these uh, into some of these generation four reactors and they will turn that thorium into uranium, which will then be consumed as the fuel. Uh, and so 
And the last thing is because of that, because I'm using nuclear waste and I'm more efficient with the fuel usage, uh, our waste product is a lot less. It's like one one hundredth the amount of waste generated for a generation four reactor compared to a uh, generation three or two or one reactor. The Gen 4 BN800 that you speak about, how long has that been operational in Russia? Uh, it went online in 2016, so it's been operating for about four years now. Is the Generation 4 reactor, is that a, a collaboration between different sovereign nations, or is it just uh, one country that kind of holds the IP on that technology? I would say there's not a collaboration, but there's different nations have different companies and different organizations that are doing it. So the Russians have the BN-800. They also have uh, its predecessor, the BN, I think it was a 350. They're designing the BN-1200, which is basically a larger version of the BN-800, learning what lessons they learned from the BN-800. They have another uh, reactor that's a test reactor that they're uh, working on. Um, so the Russia has several. Uh, the Chinese have uh, a couple. They have a molten sodium reactor like the BN-800 that they're working on. Um, they have some gas-cooled reactors. Um, UK has a company called Moltex as a molten salt reactor. There's a co uh, company in Belgium called Lead Cold that they have a liquid lead reactor. Uh, the United States has a company called TerraPower that they have a, a molten chloride salt reactor and a molten sodium reactor design. They're well-known because Bill Gates is their primary funding. Uh, Peter Thiel is behind a company called Oklo, which theirs is actually a large-scale uh, reactor that's based off a space reactor uh, that was proven in 2018. Uh, then you've got terrestrial energy up in Canada. So there's companies all over uh, the world that are actually working on this technology, but it's really not collaborative uh, other than some of them. There's Moltex has you know, subsidiaries that are in Canada and the U.S. Other than you know, crossing different international boundaries. There isn't really a collaborative effort between the nations. But the principle that they are all based upon is largely similar or same? Uh, yeah, they are, they are basically, the principles are the same. The, the 2008 definition, the, when they developed that conference of what defines a reactor as a generation four reactor, um, that is what, that is the collaboration that exists. So the BN800 meets the definition of that 2008 uh, conference. So the one issue that always comes to the forefront when we speak about nuclear energy is how do you tackle the issues with nuclear waste? I believe in the past we have been using old coal mine shafts to dump this kind of radioactive waste. How does Gen 4 solve this? So I, I don't know specifically about the coal shafts. Now in the United States, we have a salt, an old salt mine that we use for some amount of nuclear waste uh, out in New Mexico. But coal shaft, salt mine doesn't matter, right? It, you know, deep, deep repositories. Um, we will still need some of that to a degree, but with generation four, because I can take that old, you know, what we call nuclear waste, probably better term is slightly used nuclear fuel, and I could use that to power a generation four reactor. Um, and I'm only using less than 5% of the energy in that fuel. So I could extract the other um, 95%. So in the United States, if I went to, uh, you know, large scale commercial reactor, its fuel lasts somewhere between four and a half to six years. If I could magically transform that reactor into a generation four reactor that could use 100% of the energy, that reactor would last somewhere between 300 and 500 years with the fuel that's loaded in it. 
basically I'm going to recycle that nuclear waste into these generation four reactors. So if I take a, a, a cask of waste, you know, let's say it's, we take a, a trash can's worth of nuclear waste, put in a reactor, run it for 40 years. I still have a trash can's worth of waste, but instead of it lasting the hundred thousand years that everyone's concerned about, it's only going to last about 300 years. And that's only less than 5% of it. We could chemically process it, remove it. And so now I've got say, you know, a soda can's worth of waste out of this giant trash can that I have to manage for, you know, a hundred, a couple hundred years instead of tens of thousands of years. So do you imagine that a whole ecosystem of startups can look into this where, where you say that you need that nuclear waste to be extracted from the, from the nuclear reactor and there would be some degree of processing that would go into it before it, it kind of it's repurposed? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole group that is working on this. And in the United States, um, this company called Oaklo, that they have the little tiny space, they have, it's a small reactor by size compared to uh, most reactors. There's a, a 1.5 megawatt. They are actually going to use waste from a generation one reactor for their first fuel loadout. So there is going to be an industry involved in, re, in, in reprocessing waste to use in advanced generation four reactors. Every time we have an accident with a natural gas fire plant or a coal fire power plant, it seems to stay, historically speaking, localized. But the kind of human and environmental damage that uh, we get with something like a Fukushima or Chernobyl, that is incomprehensible. Does Gen 4 solve those kinds of risks or does it reduce them? It's, good, it's not going to solve them per se. Um, you know, could you, with sabotage with someone who's knowledgeable could you cause a a meltdown uh yes but with the generation four it would be localized into the reactor complex itself um and if you actually look in historically with with the test reactors that were of a liquid metal design or of a gas cool design there were several that did melt down back in the 50s and 60s and those were actually contained to um the the site itself uh and then but then when you get into the water-cooled reactors that's where you have the problem with the the chernobyl and the fukushima is because they caused uh, and chernobyl is a massive steam explosion without a containment vessel all reactors have a containment of some some variety now um and so that's what caused that to be spread when they had the accident and then and that's an overpower casualty and then um, Fukushima was a loss of cooling casualty. And actually, uh, because of just a property, they basically split all the steam that was surrounding their fuel uh, into its base elements of hydrogen and oxygen. And that basically was three hydrogen explosions that blew up the three facilities out there. Um, so when you're looking at it from that perspective, uh, you're switching to these new coolant designs where you actually can't even have that the Fukushima style accident, you can't generate the hydrogen gas. And then if you did overpower them, you could potentially have a meltdown, but it would be a localized. Every reactor that was of a liquid metal or, or of, a, of what would be considered a generation four type, every reactor that underwent a meltdown, they actually pulled the melted fuel out and put in new fuel and started them up again. And so it's not really a big deal. Yeah, you've damaged that particular fuel loadout, but it's not like it's the end of the world. Um, you know, you're not going to damage the surrounding environment. Can you explain what a meltdown is? So a meltdown is when you get the fuel and it's surrounding 
the cladding as it's called. Basically all the fuel, what, what stores the fuel itself. They're in rods about the thickness of a pen that are you know, several feet long. And if you get it so hot, that will actually melt and it produces kind of a molten mixture that's the industry calls corium. So that's all it is. is that's what a melt. That's what a meltdown is. Is it's causing that fuel to actually liquefy because it gets so hot. And that's based on the current fuel designs. If you look at some of the new fuel designs that they have, uh, they use more ceramics, and so they can handle much higher temperatures. So even if they were to get to the temperatures at which, say, Fukushima and Three Mile and and Chernobyl melted down at, the fuel would actually remain intact. And when you say very high temperatures, is it true that it can actually work its way through concrete? Um, it, it can, yes. Uh, and it depends on how much and how thick your, your, your concrete is, how much heat it's generating. And I would say it work its way. I mean, it's, it just it starts to absorb the concrete. Um, and then it will, you know, there's a certain amount of, of concrete it can go through. Um, and uh, if you look at the actual groundwater around Chernobyl, which is the worst accident, um, you know, they call it the elephant's foot, where it literally the, the, the coria melted into what looks like an elephant's foot. And it's in the basement of the facility. So it's not, it hasn't penetrated into the groundwater. The kind of nuclear power plants that the aircraft carriers and the nuclear powered submarines use are also the light water reactors, which um, the Fukushima and Chernobyl used. Is that correct? And from a design perspective, why has there be, never been an accident? Um, is it because the aircraft carriers and submarines they are operated at a with a higher degree of discipline and maintained likewise? Is that not a correct way of thinking about these things? Since the scale of power generation is totally different, and therefore risks are exponentially lower. So uh, they are light water reactors. That is that is a true statement. Um, there is a a different kind of discipline to how they're operated. Um, they're not. Uh, you know, cost is not as big of an issue for the military. So they're not concerned about, you know, reducing the number of people. So they have a large, a larger number of people working per scale. They're also much smaller. Um, a commercial reactor is about 3000 megawatts thermal, which is about six times the size of an aircraft carrier reactor. And then about 30 times the size of a submarine reactor. So submarine reactors are, and aircraft carriers reactors are much smaller. The other thing is, is that a commercial reactor, you bring it online and you operate it at 100% power because you're generating their base load. Um, submarines and aircraft carriers, on average, operate at only about 30% of their power level, but they're designed around continuous operations at 100%. So you don't have the kind of heat generation that exists. The other thing is, is that, um, you know, they float over the waves. So, you know, you look at Fukushima, it was a, uh, tsunami that came and washed out their safety systems. Well, an aircraft carrier would float over that or a submarine would float over that or under it in the case of a submarine even. And so you always have your cooling. You never have the concern of losing your source of water or your ability to, to pump it. And then the other thing is, is if you, you know, if there is an issue on a submarine aircraft carrier, you can tow them away. Um, and that's actually in the, in their accident procedures is to bring tugs alongside and tow the vessel out to sea. I asked this question because in watching the masterclass called Chernobyl on HBO, they kind of attributed it less to the to the design flaws within the RBMK reactor and more to the human error. Did you watch the show and was it fair estimation of what would have actually happened on Ground Zero? 
I actually did not watch the show, which I know surprises a lot of people, but I would say the design flaws are part of the problem. But the bigger problem with that was a, a series of human errors. The design flaws with the human errors was the problem. The fact of, that happened at Chernobyl was that they ran a test that wasn't run through the reactor engineers. In fact, reactor engineers at other RBMK sites declined to do the test. And Chernobyl was the last RBMK site that they could even, you know, propose doing it, to, doing it. And they had a KGB agent that pushed it. So you had the wrong people working on a test. And then they got so caught up in making this test work that they violated their safety protocols. Those safety protocols, the equivalence in other reactor designs can't be violated in that manner. So that's part of the reason of the Chernobyl accident is one, you know, you had a flawed, the flawed humans, but you also had flawed safety designs. You know, if you had taken that in any other reactor, if I needed had an RBMK in a U.S. facility that underwent that test because the U.S. requires a containment structure, the reactor would have exploded like that, but it would have been contained inside of the containment. So it wouldn't have even been the issue. It would have been localized just to the side as opposed to being, you know, having the major disaster that occurred. So how do the Gen 4 reactors and associated safety systems, how do they prevent radiation from entering the sources of water, like rivers and lakes, since water is one of the primary inputs to a nuclear power plant? We have good data about the cancer clusters forming near locations of these nuclear power plants. Um, so one of the things that Gen 4 does that is different is that by switching away from water as your primary coolant, you don't have that, you know, you're not making any radioactive water for one, from that standpoint. So you're using a steam generator that's basically receiving the heat from either gas, liquid metal, or uh, a molten salt. So you're, you're removing it in a lot of ways in that, in that manner. With that also, you know, you're going to have a, a containment. You know, it's typically a concrete, steel-reinforced, steel-lined vessel that the reactor goes into. And that's normal of any reactor in the U.S., and then I would say this, with as far as the cancer data, if you go looking for cancers, if you go anywhere in the U.S., you'll actually find cancers or anywhere in the world. If you went to a coal plant, you went to a natural gas plant, you went to a solar farm, and you started doing specific testing for types of cancers that you wouldn't normally test for, you're going to find more data. So that's one of the things when people talk about the cancer data. If I went to a U.S. nuclear plant, and, I, and we do this, we start looking for more and more cancers, you're doing early screening more than anything. And so they might find that I have thyroid cancer, but if you took the same version of me that never worked in the nuclear industry, uh, that's the exact same age and everything, that same person may actually have that same thyroid cancer, but because you're screening it early to try and look for data around nuclear plants, you find, you find cancer. If you look for problems, sometimes you'll find a problem. How many Gen 4-based projects have been announced are they mostly being driven by the state-owned enterprises or are there any existing private firms or new startups that are trying to enter this space? Uh, are there any that you would like to name in particular? So Russia has the has a couple of Gen 4 reactors in that are both uh, liquid sodium. They've got uh, a liquid, I think it's liquid lead that they're building right now um, with a spent fuel reprocessing facility. China has some gas-cooled and uh, a liquid sodium reactor that they that they are building, uh, and then I think UK has signed a kind of a program to start developing Gen 4 reactors. Canada has three sites selected to build 
The United States has, they're going to be building, it's not, it doesn't qualify as Gen 3, but starting, I believe, 2022, they're going to break ground on a 12-unit facility uh, for New Scale, which is an advanced Generation 3 reactor. And then a company called Oaklo uh, is hearing back from, they're in the licensing process, and they're hoping to break ground, I believe, next year on a Generation 4 reactor out in Idaho as well. So there, and then the U.S. actually has a a three company request to build uh, small mobile reactors for the United States Army. So there's a lot of uh, stuff going on around the U.S., really around the world with with Generation Four reactors. So I think we're seeing a lot of progress, and I believe even India has uh, a couple of designs. I don't know specifically about what's going on in India. Uh, but I believe that they have a couple of Generation 4 reactors that they're designing and working on with plans to build. Can you explain the primary difference between base load and peak load? And what is the response that you uh, give to people when they ask you why renewables cannot replace fossil? Yeah, so the difference between base load and peak load is base load is you have, you know, I'm just going to use arbitrary numbers. Let's say we we did 100 units of power. Um, and then it fluctuates is, is the average. And then it fluctuates, say, between 95 and 105 units. So your base load is going to be anything that's down below that, probably about the 80, 80 power unit range. So you bring those units online and they stay at 100% power. So that's base load. And then your peak load or variable load is the stuff that's going to cycle up and down. That works great with you know nuclear being your old scale nuclear works great as a base load because they don't like to change power very well, but you could ramp up things like natural gas. Now, generation four designs are actually designed to where they can do that up and down cycling very easily. So they'll be able to handle that. So they'll be able to handle the the uh, peak load or variable load. Um, it's called load following. Now, the problem with renewables is that they're neither. They can't adjust based on the peak and they can't be base load because they vary. So you know, if you look, you know, throughout the day, right, obviously the sun is up in the, in the middle of the day and it's, you know, out, you know, off in the middle of the night. So your solar is only operating when the sun is up. And with wind, it actually cycles. Wind mainly produces most of its energy at night in the middle of the night. But that area between dusk and about midnight, you don't have that much wind generation. And we're seeing this right now in the United States and California. California is notorious for their green initiatives. They have tons of wind and tons of solar, and they are finding that uh, they have to shut power off to millions of people every single evening uh, as solar goes offline before the wind picks up. Uh, so that's part of the problem is that you're now dependent on weather as opposed to dependent on you know, energy demand. Can you briefly touch upon the lessons that we've learned from Germany uh, shutting down its nuclear power plants and doubling down or tripling down on on solar prices of energy quadrupling in the past yeah. decade. Yeah, that's 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 a fascinating thing. Is, is that when you, the big great comparison between Germany and France, about the same size population, same size everything, including energy demand. And France is seventy percent nuclear, uh, and then about twenty five percent. Hydroelectric, and then five percent everything else, and they have some of the lowest carbon emissions of all nations on the planet. Then you look at Germany as they're shutting down their nuclear plants. You know their carbon emissions are going up, not down, right? They keep saying well, we'll keep adding more and more renewables. Well, every time you add a renewable plant, if you want 
if you don't want to be California and shut up power, you got to add something to replace it. Well, that comes in the form of, in their case, coal. They're actually adding coal to their infrastructure. So their overall carbon emissions are going up. And you brought and you brought up the fact that power costs go up. Well, if you look at France, they have, you know, 95% of their power is from one type or is from two types of power plants. Well, those power plants are always operating, except when they go down for maintenance. When they go down for maintenance, they plan that around the spring and the fall when power demand is low. So they can, you know, they're in control of the power. And but they only have one power plant, you know. You know, if you need, you need a thousand homes, I got one power plant that powers those thousand homes. Whereas in Germany, so they can have their renewables, you would have to buy two power plants to have that same thing, which causes prices to go up. I think Germany's now three times the power cost uh, to what France pays. Cost of French electricity is actually very highly inflated too, because they have a lot of taxes into that. So France not only is their power cheaper. But it's cheaper while being artificially inflated through a form of taxation. The nuclear raw material industry is dominated, in my understanding, by two countries. A, Canada with uh, Cameco's Fort MacArthur mine, and B, Rosatom in Kazakhstan, which is mostly dominated by Russia. Over the past two years, we have seen both of them reduce production to a great extent. Is this because of the Fukushima effect? And how does this uh, affect the 54 or so generation three power plants that are being built will become operational over the course of the next decade. Part of the issue that's coming out of this is that uh, there's other people that are they're bringing uranium mines online. So the United States has announced an initiative to start building uh, uranium mines here again, reopening them. Uh, Australia actually has a large amount of uranium uh, as well. Um, one of the other things that uh, is kind of fascinating about this is that uh, the a lot of the the nuclear power plants around the world right now are actually powered by old Soviet weapons. So you've got two primary types of weapons that were built, um, and it's going back to uh, you know the Hiroshima Nagasaki. Uh, Hiroshima was a uranium based weapon, and Nagasaki was a plutonium based weapon. So uh, Hiroshima. That, that uranium based weapon used to use, use highly enriched uranium 235. So greater than uh, 90% um, uranium 235. And commercial reactors operate at somewhere between three to 5%. And so a lot of that old weapons materials as Russia, Russia is uh, removing its stockpiles in the United States too, to some, some degree, they have taken those, they started with the uranium weapons because they don't have as big of a, of a blast, if you will. And they take those and they down blend it and use it in commercial reactors. So you have part of that as the, as the reason why there's been a reduction is that we're doing a form of recycling already in the nuclear industry, uh, basically fixing a lot of the weapons problems. But then there's also, I think, other countries are bringing up, and there's a lot of uranium out there based on peak power demand, which is 21,000 gigawatts was what the, the smart people say about the amount of power we need. Right now, I think planetary wide, we're about 4,000 gigawatts of energy. So you think about that, we're not, we're about one fifth of where we're, where we're expected to be at humanity. So at 21,000 gigawatts, we have about a thousand years of uranium 235 available to us. Um, and then when you look at, uh, if we go to generation four designs, that changes into a quarter million for uranium, add in thorium, and now we have a million years of energy available for humanity. 
what are small modular reactors i know you have a deep experience working on them and do you see any future for them from a point of view of power production at source can you speak about the progress that's been made so far in commercializing them and are there any interesting companies or startups operating in that space so a, a small modular reactor uh, by definition anything between 50 megawatts and 350 megawatts and what makes a small modular reactor unique and, and really interesting is, is that they're essentially factory built. So I build my uh, reactor in, in modules, which is where the small modular comes from. And you have you know different factories that have a factory that builds, say, the power plant itself, the power unit, and have another factory that would build, say, your turbine skid, another one build, say, your, con- your condenser skid, another one that would build, say, your control module, and then one would, say, build your emergency systems. And they're all built in different locations, but the same company's building the same small subset over and over and over again. So you develop repeatability. Uh, and then you ship them to a final destination where you're going to assemble these things together. You've done a bunch of pre-testing before you get there. So you just have to do what's called integrated plant testing. So you put it all together, you do your testing at the final facility where it's going to be you know, put online. So you go in there, you send in a construction team, they do your infrastructure building you know, assemble these things together like like um, Lego pieces, and then you do all your final testing, and then you can start it up. And it should be, you know reduce the build time from eight or nine years down to you know two or three years uh, to build a a reactor, uh, at least in the final location. And if you look at it, the the United States Navy has proven that this works, and they have they use two shipyards to build their nuclear powered submarines. And the way they build them is that the two shipyards actually don't build the entire submarine. They build each about 40% of it, and they ship their parts between the two of them. And then every other submarine is finalized at each of the shipyards. So the final 20% is actually built in the delivering shipyard. You know, the very front ends may be built down in Newport News, and say the, the command and control module where they drive this, the submarine from is built up in Connecticut, and they're just shipping modules back and forth. And then when they get done and they've actually the original build cycle was seven years and they brought it down to five years now they doubled the amount so they're struggling with uh keeping up parts demands the factories for all this stuff couldn't keep up with them but they got to the point where they were delivering submarines two years ahead of schedule they were under budget because you've developed that repeatability um, and when i talked about that advanced reactor that uh, was going to be built in idaho by a company called new scale their 60 megawatt reactors, they're going to build 12 of them so that they can factory build them. And so each one is going to be its own little unique reactor, but they're going to work the 12 of them ultimately together as one. And so that's kind of the, the, the idea behind a small modular reactor is I can have that small one and I wouldn't necessarily need to build 12. Uh, new scale, you could have a three unit facility, right? Or a six unit facility or a 12, or you could put a couple of 12. So you want to power, say, a large city like Delhi, right? You may want to, you know, have, you know, say, thirty or forty of these reactors. Say, you know, you get a, you know, you get three, three, uh, three twelve unit facilities. But then, say, out where I live, you may only want, you know, say, six of them, so that that way, you know, you can, you know, adjust it based on what you need, uh, and then you keep your your transmission line shorter, which means you have less losses. Uh, you don't have to ramp up the voltage because uh, if you go really high with voltage, it causes you know crazy loud noises and stuff like that from the transmission lines. 
so you can keep everything localized and you don't have to worry about uh, you know a lot more infrastructure. Any interesting uh, startups in that space? Um, yeah, so uh, New Scale is an interesting one uh, from the United States. There's uh, X Energy, also United States company, uh, Terrestrial Energy. Uh, Moltex's uh, design is actually really fascinating. They're a UK-based company. Their reactor unit itself is modular to where they can just stack these the their their reactor. They can just keep adding them, so you can build a larger containment. But like you could start out and like say I don't remember specifically, like say maybe 50 megawatt with one. But you could just keep adding this thing. So if you had, say, uh, an old reactor that had a thousand megawatt turbine, you could just keep adding their modules until you get to a thousand megawatts. So you wouldn't necessarily have to, um, you know, you could adjust their reactor based on the size of your turbine. And then uh, that company, Oklo, that has the micro reactor that's 1.5 megawatts, they're using a commercial turbine. It's a, a, a supercritical carbon dioxide turbine instead of water, instead of a steam turbine. And so, um, but it's already designed and built. So just going to take something that already exists and have to design a new turbine. You know, we know how to make it work and then they're just going to attach it to their reactor itself. In my research, I have seen that uh, nuclear gets a lot of pushback from thorium-based reactors. So are these two technologies really competing with each other or they can exist independently? Um, it's funny there. I think that there's a belief that they're competing, but they're really not. And thorium is a fuel, right? And so the, the way to describe it is kind of, um, it's almost like different octanes of gasoline, uh, you know, or petrol or, you know, depending on where you're at. Um, but like you've got um, the current reactors we use, the, genera the, the generation three and two reactors are more like a diesel because of the type of fuel they use. It requires a little difference processing uh, for uranium-235. But if you're using a plutonium or a thorium reactor, they're basically two grades of very, very similar fuel that operate very similarly. And you can actually operate them in the same reactor uh, at the same time. Uh, we actually saw this, the very first commercial reactor in the United States out in shipping port, her initial fuel was that you know diesel version of uranium-235, which then created plutonium uh, inside the reactor, which it ran off of. And then it's, it did, did that for two cores. And then its last, its third core and final refuel was actually done with thorium. So you can operate them together. Uh, thorium is a great fuel, um, it, but you can definitely make them work together. You can make them work independently, other than the fact that thorium is not a fuel without what's called transmutation, turning it into uranium 233. So you have to start with either. Uh, plutonium or uranium-235 to create that uranium-233 so then your thorium reactor uh, can operate. I heard your, you say in an interview that nuclear is the safest form of energy. I kind of contest that view because in my own engineering experience, I have found that geothermal is probably the safest way to generate energy. Have you ever got this argument before or is your view more to do with scale? Um, I would say that I think my view is probably more to do with scale. I actually have not heard the geothermal argument, but um, if we could find something that, that is even safer than nuclear, I would definitely go for that. And I have, I, I think that tidal and geothermal have uh, a place in our energy mix because they are, you know, geothermal is reliable as is tidal. Um, I think that's why, why I like those two. I don't know how they are scale wise. Um, and geothermal could very well be safe, but when you look at the 
when people talk about the safety of them, uh, I think geothermal and tidal are so small uh, in comparison to wind, solar, hydro, uh, nuclear, uh, coal, uh, natural gas, and oil that I think that it, they kind of get forgotten. And so that's probably more of a um, uh, an incomplete analysis on my part uh, than anything. But uh, I think you nailed it right there with it's a scale thing because I don't know how much geothermal is out there, and I think it's it's pretty small overall. I think the the single location we have we could install 100 megawatt uh, uh, of geothermal, but again, it is dependent on the geology. Whereas a nuclear power plant can be set up almost anywhere where there is a source of clean water. Um, well, actually, you don't necessarily need a source of clean water. Oklo's design uses no water for cooling; it uses air. It's an air-cooled reactor. So, well, it's because they use a supercritical carbon dioxide uh, turbine. Uh, instead of using a condenser with water cooling through it, it, uh, it has a radiator that would then use air cooling. So you don't even need water. You mentioned about the energy mix. That kind of is a great segue towards uh, the Green New Deal. And for the sake of our listeners who may not be keyed into the latest and greatest developments, can you explain the Green New Deal in a nutshell and why is it being proposed? Um, so the Green New Deal uh, is a proposal by the Democrat Party in the United States that uh, is basically a, a desire to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. And so it talks about uh, there's there's three major tenants to it. One is agriculture, one is uh, transportation, and one is uh, electricity production. So things that they propose in there is the, the ending of the consumption of, of meat, uh, primarily livestock, uh, because of the amount of uh, methane gas that is produced uh, in the process of, of raising cattle, um, raising chickens, raising that, um, which is funny because that contradicts their electricity, which talks about going to biomass as one of their big things. Biomass meaning they're going to need somewhere to get fuel, and one of their big sources is actually livestock manure. And then the second is transportation. So ending all um, oil-based transportation. So terminating air flights or switching to electric uh, powered planes and, and all that. Um, and then the last with the Green New Deal is uh, switching over to wind, solar, biomass, uh, which really, you know, if you look at wind and solar, uh, we mentioned how unreliable they are. So they're not really all that viable. And then when you look at biomass, um, what's interesting about biomass in the United States is the amount of forests we are destroying to power these basically wood burning power plants. I mean, that's what they're burning is primarily wood because you don't get a lot of energy out of that manure as much as they would think they can. Um, and it's not as reliable. And then a lot of times they're, they're burning up our, uh, creosote soaked, uh, power poles, right? Our old power poles that we have, they're big giant logs. And they're soaked in creosote, which is when you burn that stuff, it's really bad. So it's just, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting, it's a, uh, it's a pretty crazy policy, really, when you look at it. There's one of the, the key architects of it, uh, Alexandria Octasio-Cortez, said it's more of, a, of a, an affirmation, you know, or something we'd like to get to, but we know we're not going to actually get to it. So it was never, apparently it was never designed to be actual policy. Uh, than to be just kind of a, a pipe dream of, you know, you know, it's it's like dessert <laughs> more than it is sustenance. 
I think some portions of it are aspirational, while certain portions are, are literally uh, pushing the boundaries of logic. Yeah. When the likes of Ocasio-Cortez speak about the Green New Deal and a complete decarbonization, what role are the lawmakers imagining for nuclear? And is there any set formula that they they have indicated in the legislation that they have put in front of the public so far? Because we have seen Germany, like you said, shut down all the nuclear plants, France kind of doubling down on them. Which model do you think that the U.S. are more likely to imbibe? Um, well, it, it kind of depends on what party you're working with right now. What I would say, not even what party. There's there's the fringe groups. Um, so uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is 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 on the extreme left, which is you know they don't want to use anything but uh, wind, solar, and renewables. You know, kind of the child policy. And on the extreme right, you've got uh, you know the the oil and gas barons, if you will, that you know they you know, they don't want to use anything but oil and gas, right? You know, climate change is a hoax in their opinion. Um, and then if you look towards the center of the two parties, you've got, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker on the Democrats. And then you've got Alexander drawing a blanket who the other guys on the right, but there's both in the U.S. Senate, they're driving a, um, a more centralized policy. Green New Deal is silent on nuclear. It doesn't condemn it or condone it, but it's very silent. And so we believe that it was originally, con it was originally condemned, but they've kind of walked to walk that back. Now, if you look at the Republican House reelection policy for the House of Representatives for the Republicans, they have made a proposal uh, that Kevin McCarthy, who's heading that, that campaign for 435 House districts for Republicans, that is a very natural gas nuclear based program for uh, Republicans to sign on to. So they've gone very much for a pro-nuclear stance. So I think that most of the Republicans are signed on to nuclear. A few of the Democrats are are changing their ways and thinking about it. Uh, and then when you look at, you know, Michael Moore, famous filmmaker here in the United States, you know, he's been very, you know, he was very much for the Green New Deal, for the Green New Deal. And he was an executive producer on a documentary called The Planet of the Humans where he basically debunks uh, wind, solar, and biomass as bad for the environment, if not worse for the environment, than coal, oil, and natural gas. Your organization, uh, Gen4 Nuclear, how do you go about forwarding the nuclear cause and kind of convincing, educating policymakers about uh, including nuclear in the, in the Green New Deal? And uh, did you coin the term Green Nuclear Deal? Um, I did coin the term green nuclear deal. Uh, yeah, and I came up with that in February of uh, 2019, right after the Green New Deal uh, came into uh, being. Uh, and um, so how I go about uh, talking to policymakers and uh, educating the public is, is I, I do a lot of podcasts, I do a lot of speaking, um, a lot of uh, social media engagement. I'm very... Uh, uh, you know, I have a fairly large presence on both LinkedIn and Twitter uh, are my two methods in which I promote it. Um, I uh, speak directly with um, some, you know, pretty big names uh, that are, you know, sh shall we say in the celebrity realm, uh, trying to, to help them promote nuclear and educate them. Uh, a lot of times just, you know, a lot of times just sitting down and talking with a policymaker saying, hey, do you know about this, about nuclear and that about nuclear and trying to just beef them up on the technology. Uh, I got the opportunity to actually have a 
one-on-one conversation with the Speaker of House of Delegates of uh, West Virginia. West Virginia, the United States, is a very anti-nuclear state, and to have you know that uh, a, a a invitation to go speak with uh, their speaker was uh, you know an amazing event. You know where I could take a state that's because West Virginia is coal country in the United States. There, you know, everything revolves around coal. But to have that conversation about, hey, I think you could build nuclear here, and uh, you know, start those conversations, start those seeds. And I think that more and more lawmakers and the public in general is becoming uh, more pro-nuclear. Uh, and I, you know, see the works of, of my fellow advocates, whether it's uh, Mike Schellenberger, the president of Environmental Progress, whether it's um, you know, Generation Atomic with Eric Myers, you know, a lot of guys are moving the needle in a very positive direction. So I think we're seeing push towards more education uh, in a manner that that people can understand. You mentioned about at the beginning, you asked, explain this as if it was to a 10-year-old. And uh, I'm always fascinated because I remember going to seeing the Museum of Natural History up in um, uh, Washington, D.C. And I remember going, man, everything here feels like it's written for about a third or fourth grader, which is about the age of 10, right? And I kind of took that as a lesson when I started my advocacy saying, how can I explain these complex concepts, which engineers are great at explaining concept concepts to other engineers, but how can I translate those detailed, hard to explain issues down to, to where a 10 year old can understand it? You know, how does fission work? How does radiation work? You know, why aren't you, why shouldn't you be scared of radiation? You know, that's, that's a big thing, you know, because everyone hears, you know, and they want to, they want to black and white. Is radiation good or bad for you? And uh, I had a banana for breakfast this morning. It contains potassium 41. Potassium 41 is radioactive, right? I consumed radioactive material for breakfast this morning. I had a cup of coffee. That coffee contains this evil word called tritium. Tritium is a form of hydrogen. It's bonded with oxygen to make water. It creates many times or most of the tritium on the planet is created in the upper atmosphere uh, by the sun. And then some tritium is created on the planet inside of uh, light water reactors. So, but it's the same tritium. It's not, there's not two different forms of tritium. There's two different ways to make it, but it's the same tritium. And we consume that. I don't consume a lot of it. I consumed a lot of it. That would be a problem, but a small amount doesn't hurt us. Um, You know, there's, you know, talks about Fukushima and they're going to discharge some of the wastewater that's previously processed, but still contains some low levels amounts of radioactive material in it. It's really not that bad. I know because I've, I've consumed, you know, or I've been involved in that kind of stuff. You know, the actual water that is used to cool a reactor, you can actually drink it and it wouldn't hurt you. But if you drank it every day over time, it may start to hurt you. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, uh, the father of the nuclear Navy, he actually went in front of a committee on co- in Congress and drank primary coolant from a submarine reactor, which is just water, in front of them. I just want people to understand that it's not a black and white, you know, there, there's a gradient on all that and trying to explain to them that radiation isn't ne- necessarily bad. It just is. Mark, in my research, uh, I have watched a bunch of your interviews on YouTube and uh, and a few podcasts. You've come across as a very well-read and a very well-informed person. What are the three major sources of information that you read and refer to in order to form your own worldview? 
Um, it's interesting because so mo- my my ex- my experience is probably my number one source of information. Uh, you know, the fact that I've worked in the in the industry for for twenty years has been my major source. Uh, the other the other major source actually is my wife. Um, she actually has a master's uh, degree in uh, nuclear energy that is specific to advanced generation four reactors. So whenever I look up something and it may be just looking at Wikipedia, I know as terrible as that is, but look at Wikipedia and I try to, based on my own base knowledge, and then I go, hey, how does this work? And looking at looking through her textbooks and things like that on how it works. Um, and then the other thing is, is that I'm always, you know, when I go online every morning, I Google the word nuclear and I look for the news articles. And if you look, there's the Nuclear Engineering Institute, which is a, a US-based organization, and World Nuclear News, WNN, they have a lot of great information that I can read and then I can digest the nugget out of it and provide it to people. But there's no real good, I would say, book on nuclear energy. And I think that that's probably what I need to work on is something where I can take this this hard concept and, and break it down into something easy. And I would say this is that, you know, and, and I've discussed this and maybe if I say it more, I'll actually do it. But one of the things about most nuclear books about nuclear power is they start with the, how does fission work? And that's fine. But if I was to start a book, I would say electricity works and I would work down from the end product and then we work towards the building blocks to how do we get, and this is probably, by the way, this is the greatest way I've ever heard nuclear power explain it. I'll give James McLaughlin. He's a licensed nuclear operator friend that I know. And um, he, he, he breaks down nuclear into this. The magic rock boils the water, makes the steam, causes the turbine to go roundy-roundy, which causes the arky-sparky that makes your phone work. So it's kind of that breaking those things down into that simple you know, way. And you know, how do we make that magic rock work? Just explaining all those concepts in a manner that the average person would want to understand. I think everyone could understand it, but do they want to pick up a book and read about nuclear energy? That's probably the biggest thing is, is I'm excited about nuclear energy. I love it. You know, I, I, you know, live, eat, breathe, sleep it, but do everyone else, right? How does the average person, you know, in the, in any country, are they excited about it? Well, not nearly as, as excited as I am, but how do I make something that would be exciting enough for them to want to read? Uh, so I don't go too technical on them because they're not excited to actually read technical jargon. Which are the few books that you find yourself recommending to your friends, especially that are not from your own field of work? Let's see, your books that I recommend, uh, and, and I recommend this primarily to my friends because in the nuclear industry, we, we're terrible at communication. And uh, I, would, I would recommend the book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big by Scott Adams, the book Influence by Robert uh, Gialdini, and then um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I can't remember who wrote that. Dale Carnegie. Yeah, Dale Carnegie. Yeah, those are probably the three of the best books. And, um, you know, my wife's the one who, who put me on to uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I would recommend those over any nuclear book I've ever read or any anything in the industry because the ability to communicate and talk with people is a skill that is that, that specifically my industry, we lack so much in. Uh, last but not least, Mark, what is the best place for my listeners to connect with you and interact with you? 
Um, yeah, they, uh, they could find me on Twitter. My handle is at subschneider. That's S-U-B-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. And then you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I basically connect with everyone on there. Um, my direct messages are open on um, uh, Twitter. So if anyone, any of your followers have any questions, they don't want to follow me. They don't have to. But if they want to ask me a question, um, I go through and I, I try to answer every uh, message I have. Um, they can also go to my website, gen4nuclear.com. That's G-E-N-I-V, as in the Roman numeral four, nuclear.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to connecting with any of your listeners if uh, they have any questions. Uh, Mark, that was a really fascinating conversation. And we've learned so much in a, such a short span of time. I must deeply thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure.